Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. Winter is coming. Heavy rain, sleet, snow, and ice. Are your tires up for the challenge? Tread confidently in winter's worst with a set of new tires from Tire Rack. They sell only the best, like the full line of Pirelli tires. Go to TireRack.com slash sports. Tell them what you drive. Your tires will ship fast and free to you or one of over 10,000 recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. This is the best of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. It's a play that will be used in countless high school, college, NFL locker rooms to the rest of mankind to instruct what not to do at the safety position on the final play of a game. All you had to do was play safely there. Allow the catch to be made. Put yourself into a position that the moment Diggs comes back down after making the catch, you are there to wrap him up. Just slow him down. If you just get your hands on him, there will be other defensive backs there to make the tackle. Just keep him in bounds, and the game is over. That's actually what's so difficult about it, I would imagine, for Saints coaches is as good of a play as Diggs made to get up high and catch the ball, that's actually exactly what the Saints wanted to have happen for a pass to be completed in the field that guarantees they can make the tackle in bounds, and the game is over. It's impossible at that point in time for the Vikings to get out of bounds if, it, if the DBs do a good job, and it's certainly impossible for them to get up on the line and spike the ball. Just a, a improbable failure by the Saints, and what's got to sting so much, it's one thing when you lose – and you feel like, okay, well, we basically exceeded our goals. We went as far as we could go. This Saints team could have won the Super Bowl. I think this Saints team, if they had gotten past that tackle, if they had made that tackle on the road against the Vikings, I think the Saints team would have gone on the road and beaten the Eagles too. I told you last weekend, I believe that this game was effectively the NFC Championship game. Whoever won between the Vikings and the Saints, in my opinion, would be going to the Super Bowl. I still stand by that, and I think if the Saints had beaten the Vikings, they would have gone on the road and beaten the Eagles too. 
So it's not just that you lost if you're the Saints fan. It's that you lost and you would have otherwise been in the Super Bowl. And by the way, I think the Saints would have had a pretty good chance to win the Super Bowl too. What an unbelievable ending. We've got audio, I believe, of Stefan Diggs reacting to the play as well. Let's hear that. I still don't know what just happened. I really don't. Yes. All I can say is give it to God because without him, nothing, nothing is possible and I wouldn't be here. So damn, that did feel good. Other thing I would say is can we end the trend of thanking God? I, I mean, if you're thanking God there, what you're basically saying is, God, thank you for hating Marcus Williams. God, thank you for ensuring that Marcus Williams made the dumbest play maybe in the history of any safety in the NFL. God, thank you for kicking Marcus Williams to the curb here. God doesn't care about sporting events. So saying glory to God, thank you, God, for this play. Thank you for blessing me. Like, if you're going to make that argument, what you're effectively also saying is, God, thank you for hating Marcus Williams. Thank you for making him make the dumbest play in the history of the NFL. Thank you for making him suddenly lose his mind and not realize that all he needed to do was tackle me at the 35-yard line after I caught a pass because the clock was going to run out. God doesn't care about sporting events, regardless of how religious you are. And he certainly is not glorifying you there at the expense of Marcus Williams. Here's what happened. Stephon Diggs made a play. Case Keenum made a play. And Marcus Williams completely and totally blew it. It happens, but my God, I don't know how. If, Like I said, when I started off the show, if you were a Saints or a Vikings fan, you are in any way able to sleep last night. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weeknights at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. We hear so much about how many hours NFL coaches and college football coaches spend preparing all the film that they watch, all of the work that they do. I don't understand how they consistently make bad decisions on the sideline. For instance, there were so many things that happened. I'll just use Sunday for an example. The decision by the Steelers to not kick off deep when they cut that score to 42-35, to I think it was, right? 42-35. There are two minutes and 18 seconds left, if I'm not mistaken, when they score that touchdown to make it 42-35. They have two timeouts plus the two-minute warning. So the play there, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is to kick off deep. Because if you don't kick off deep, exactly what we saw happen can happen where the Jags have an opportunity to kick a field goal and effectively end the game. If you kick it off deep, You know that the odds are that the Jags are going to run the ball three times, certainly if Blake Bortles is pinned deep, and they are then going to punt back to you, and you will have the ball with no timeouts left, and around, around, if you use your timeouts correctly, around two minutes, right? Because immediately, with two, let's say you kick off deep and you put it in the end zone, which you should, no time is going to come off the clock. You have two timeouts and the two-minute warning. You should immediately, I think, call a timeout. Now, Mike Tomlin let it run all the way down to two minutes, and that's an intriguing time clock decision in and of itself. The argument there is that by not taking an immediate timeout, he he tried to encourage the Jags not to throw the football. I think you immediately take timeouts. I'm saving all the time that I can, 
and then the two-minute warning is ending there after the third stop, and the Jags are kicking off, and I'm getting the ball punting, and I'm getting the ball back with like 152-ish, nearly, probably, if we do a good job defensively, probably around the 35-yard line at minimum, 30 or 35-yard line. And then we have uh, we have Ben Roethlisberger. The Jags' defense has not stopped us really all day. We've gone up and down the field as good as their defense is. Uh, ben Roethlisberger was on a roll. I feel like there's a good chance that the Steelers would have come back down and tied the game. I really do. I feel like there's virtually no doubt at all that that would have happened. Instead, they kick the onside kick. On top of doing a really crappy job on the onside kick, they're offsides, so the, so the Jags get an extra five yards. The Jags gain nine yards running the ball three times, are just shy of the first down marker, and come out and bomb through a field goal, and effectively the game's over. Moreover, even at the end of the game of that situation, somehow the Steelers made such bad decisions down the stretch, even when they threw the touchdown pass, there was only one second left, and effectively they had no way to win that game. You have to at least go ahead at some point in time. Like, Why would you throw the screen out wide and get tackled in bounds? It just As much time as we hear that coaches spend preparing for game situations, it always seems like to me that coaches make bad decisions down the stretch. The probability play there is to kick the ball deep with two timeouts and a two-minute warning. Does anybody disagree with that? I mean, if you are a kid playing Madden, you probably make that decision. Kids playing Madden understand how to run the clock situation there. I understand your argument of, oh, we have like a, whatever it is, what what, what percentage of onside kicks in the NFL work? 20%? Is that too high? Well, it doesn't it's, happen yes, it's very too often. High. It's too high. It's somewhere around 10% if the other team actually knows it's coming. I think it actually might be a little bit less than 10. I think the bigger argument that they tried to make for why you would onside kick there, and I think it's completely erroneous, is because they had given up five touchdowns to the Jaguars. It's like, well, why wouldn't you make them want to go further down the field? No, they're going to run the, the ball three least. times. Like, none you of have it makes un- any sense. You have to understand this game situation. And even if they do, like, even if you don't think you can stop them, well, you still have to put the ball in their hand, pin deep, and make them make that decision. So many things can happen. You can have a bad snap. We saw Bortles fumble the snap earlier in that game. Uh, in the, I think it was in the fourth quarter, wasn't it, when he just fumbled the snap and had to fall on it? Uh, we saw, or certainly it was in the third quarter. I know it was in the second half. We've seen Blake Bortles make bad decisions at quarterback over and over again. You have to put the onus on the Jags. And look, I think the Jags, you have to sell out for the run. If the Jags decide to throw it and Blake Bortles makes a great throw for a first down, more power to them. They took a risk and it panned out. You have to kick it deep. Is there any disagreement in L.A.? Any disagreement from you guys that you have to kick it deep there? Not at all. Not at all. I was here uh, live on the air when it happened and across the room in the studio, everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? I said it at the time. I mean, I don't even understand how it's a debate. Uh, Jason Martin saying you have like a 10% chance of getting the onside kick. Yeah, all right. Ignorant. Yeah, even if and, and and if they know it's coming, again, I mean, it's just such a bad decision. And then I didn't even like the way that Tomlin took the timeouts either. I think you immediately take the timeout as soon as you stop the play, and you save yourself ten seconds there. And you say, well, ten seconds makes a difference. Well, ten seconds would have certainly made a difference at the end of the game. The way that ended, would it have been different? Maybe if the Steelers had had eleven seconds left after their touchdown pass, and if they had been able to. Uh, at least attempt an onside kick, maybe you get it. 
You know, if you recover that onside kick and you got one play, you throw downfield. We saw what happened, by the way, with the uh, with the Vikings. I mean, you at least give yourself a chance to win the game. And I think the Tomlin clock management issues are going to totally get lost in all of the controversy surrounding and the celebration surrounding a wild ending there. But to me, that was on Sunday. That was a coach not putting his team in the best possible situation to win. And that's really the whole purpose of the coach, right? That's the entire purpose of what he's doing. So to me, that is a, uh, that's a failure on an epic scale by Mike Tomlin. I feel bad for Steeler fans to have to be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Titans came out and got just their teeth kicked in in this game in the second half, but there were two absolutely indefensible calls that I got a question for you. I got a good question that I think actually makes total sense. If the NFL is going to allow so many plays to be replayed, why don't you get one challenge to a judgment call that you can toss the flag for and allow New York to say, you know what, they got it wrong? I mean, I I don't know why we have set this precept in place of we're not going to review judgment calls. What if a judgment call is 100% wrong? Shouldn't you be able to challenge a judgment call if somebody gets it objectively wrong? Why did we ever set this parameter in place? We say, oh, we only review things that you can tell whether or not they are correct. You know, spot of the ball, whether a catch was made. What about when a call is totally blown? Shouldn't we be able to review a bad judgment call? Why should you not have the ability to challenge a bad judgment call? Because early in the, like 10 minutes left in the second quarter in a tie game, the official blew a call on a first down pass play to Eric Decker for the Titans. It's clearly not offensive pass interference. It's the kind of play that happens all game long. He blew it. Why should that not be reviewable, looked at by the league, and say, you know what? Yeah, that's not an offensive pass interference call. That's a no call. First down Titans. Why shouldn't you be able to challenge that? And then later, I saw something that only happens to the Patriots. I saw a illegal procedure called on a punt. 14-7, Patriots are punting from their own end zone. I saw an illegal procedure called. The, the refs go talk. They then turn it into an offsides, and it becomes a first down for the Patriots, and effectively, they score on that drive, go the length of the field to go up 21-7. Patriots should have given the ball to the refs so they could spike it after that play. Two blown calls, I think, in the first half, second quarter, that effectively ended that game. Now, I don't think the Titans would have won regardless, because I think the Patriots are going to beat the crap out of the, the Jags this weekend. Uh, coming up, and I think they're going to beat the crap out of whoever they play in the Super Bowl. And I think Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are going to win their sixth Super Bowl. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app. Especially when we're joined by our guy Jason Whitlock, at Whitlock Jason on Twitter. More of a choke job by the Saints is the question of the day, Jason, before we get into bigger issues. Or more of an improbable victory by the Vikings. You played football, college football at Ball State. When you watched that play happen, were you thinking, oh my God, I can't believe the Vikings pulled it off, or oh my God, I can't believe the Saints blew it like that? 
I saw your question on your Twitter page 30 minutes ago. I don't have an answer. I, I, I Both thoughts went through my mind. Uh, listen, I've been someone all year who was a believer in Case Keenum, that he plays with a big pair between his legs, much bigger than people give him credit for. And so he made a kind of improbable, incredible play that I actually thought all year he was capable of. Then Stefan Diggs, uh, you know, finishes that play in improbable fashion. And, of course, Marcus Williams just blew technique and lost his mind and, and whiffed. Uh, and so the Saints somewhat choked, but I, I just, I'm not surprised that Case Keenum uh, made that play. You and Case Keenum's mom and dad are the only three people yeah. in America not surprised. <laughs> uh, all right, so that play is big. The other one that I think is getting overshadowed, Mike Tomlin's management down the stretch of the Steelers, and in particular the decision not to kick deep with two timeouts, two-minute warning still there, and you know the Jags are probably going to run Leonard Fournette three times like they did even though they got the onside kick. Were you sitting there watching that game also and saying, what in the world are you thinking not kicking deep? Because this wasn't 2020 hindsight. This was live watching it. I was saying, my God, you have to kick deep here. Yeah, it it made no sense. I'm not dodging the question, but I want to just throw this out there. I thought coaching decisions all across the board in all these games was just wild. Uh, You know, what Atlanta did at the end of their game, rolling out and throwing to a guy that they've had no success with all season in the red zone, uh, (laughs) you know, throwing to in the end zone, Julio Jones, I thought that was crazy. I I thought that Mike Zimmer and Sean Payton both exchanged just like, what are you doing decisions at the end of the game? So there's a lot of pressure at the end of these playoff games and, you know, Mike Tomlin's decision may be the easiest and may be the worst, but I saw it across the board in all these playoff games. Look, I saw you beating up Mike Malarkey for, you know, dumb decisions at the end of, or during the Tennessee game with the uh, Patriots. So, playoff Malarkey, pressure. Let me makes talk about that. We didn't even, do- yes, we didn't even mention this. Maybe the dumbest decision making I've ever seen. Mike, for because everybody forgot because the Titans just ended up getting blown out. But late in the first half, with like twelve seconds, I've never yeah. seen this happen before. Mike Malarkey. Uh, so the Titans are one yard short. Okay, they have to make, and some people may have forgotten this play again. I'm glad you brought it up because I hadn't even mentioned it all day. Mike Malarkey has got a decision to make. It is fourth down and one yard to go. The Titans have one timeout left, and they take their timeout. On to stop the clock, and uh, after Mariota was out of bounds, so the clock was stopped already. They can't get a playoff in time, so they stop. They take a uh, take their last time out, and then they run the ball with Derrick Henry. So even if they had gotten a first down there, they were going to have to get on the ball and spike it and not have any time left. Mike Malarkey is not a smart man, but this kind of ties in all together with this. Do you think it's just the pressure that makes these guys lose their minds? And if that's the case. Why do you not have a designated strategy guy on your staff who is there? Just like you have a guy who's going to be like, because hey, you need to challenge it or not. Because that's the coach's job. <laughs> yeah, but if you know you're bad at it, 
I've been on this for a long time. If you know you lose your mind and you get lost in the overall flow of the game and you can't make good decisions in the in the spur of the moment, like I think I would be good in that. If if the Titans wanted when you consider Until you held the job, you would be good oh, at it. I just I, I would look, be great. I think at Belichick's it. good at it. And everybody else, and Belichick occasionally struggles, but again, I'm looking at Mike Zimmer at the end of that game. They kept throwing the ball, and I was like, they left a minute and 30, and the Saints with their yes. timeout. That was unbelievable. It was, and I was like, this is crazy. And, I, you know, the two challenges by Sean Payton were crazy. And so I, I, I will say this: the first one, he might not have had any actual info, and he was reacting to his sideline and emotion, also to the fact. Yes, but that one, at least, you don't have full information. Challenging the decision on whether or not he was still up or not—that's yeah. where you should fire somebody because they have super slow mo to go through that and say, "No, no, no, he was definitely still up." So I, I just think all these coaches struggle. I think the pressure and just. You know, maybe it's because it seems like it's more of a struggle now. And so maybe it's social media and guys knowing, oh, I'm going to get ripped. And blah. and so I just see a lot of coaches choking. And, again, I, I, Mike Tomlin may have, may have had the biggest choke job because that was a really easy decision, just kick it deep. But I saw all these guys do silly stuff. Oh, it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm so mad now about that Mike Malarkey in retrospect. I had forgotten about it because I was so focused yeah. on the Sunday games, but the decision at the end of the first half, and by the way, this is a great example. Let me ask you this because this is the other big questions we've been asking. If you were the Jags, Blake Bortles is worth $19 million if you pick up his option. You don't know what's going to happen against the Patriots, although I think the Patriots are going to win by double digits, but we'll wait and see. What do you do if you are the GM of the Jags? If you're Tom Coughlin, the VP, you're sitting back and you're making a decision, do you let him just leave and go out and try to get Alex Smith or maybe Drew Brees? He's a free agent. Certainly Kirk Cousins. There's guys out there that you potentially could grab. Yeah, there there are better options than Blake Bortles. I think that's an easy decision. You do not overpay for Blake Bortles, and I, I think Alex Smith would be a perfect option for the Jaguars. You're a loyal guy, but you also have changed jobs at some point over the course of your career multiple times. Drew Brees is 39 years old. If you were Drew Brees, would you basically shut down all the other 31 teams in the league if you think you're going to play for a few more years, or would you continue to re-up one year at a time with the Saints? No, I think you, at his age, I'd sign a three- or four-year deal with the Saints. Why would you leave that team that seems to be on an upswing? You got two great running backs. You got Michael Thomas, great receiver. Ted Ginn played his ass off this year. Your defense is improving, and you got this relationship with Sean Payton in the city of New Orleans. Why go anyplace else? Well, I think they're basically telling him we'll only commit to you one year at a time. And, I mean, I'm just saying if the Jags came to you and said we'll give you $75 million for a three-year deal. Um, well, I, if this, you really think the Saints are only going to offer this guy a that, one-year deal? That's what they've been saying, that they're, well, they're taking it a year at a time. Yeah, that's stupid and silly. And Yeah, if, if that's the case, he's going to bounce. Uh, we're talking to Jason Whitlock. Go follow him on Twitter at WhitlockJason. All right, this has been, like, in addition to the tumultuous decision-making of the divisional round to the NFL playoffs, this has been one of the most tumultuous seasons in the history of the NFL. And we got big picture. We talked small picture there about everything going on. Let's talk big picture NFL. Let's pretend that I am Roger Goodell or you are Roger Goodell and we're sitting around trying to figure out how to make things work 
in the years ahead for the NFL. First of all, do you think this controversy over the anthem is over, or do you think next year it's going to reemerge again? I'm probably 55% thinking it's over, uh, but I, part of me thinks it will reemerge again because I, I'm not sure how the NFL, um, Goodell and Joe Lockhart and those guys, I'm not sure how they feel about it in terms of, I think, Jerry Jones and a lot of hardcore football people have a strong point of view that, you know, we got to get this out of football. But I'm not sure if the guys in New York that run the league, if they feel as strongly and as passionately about that and have they communicated that to all the players. Uh, but but I think there's plenty of proof that it's not good for football and eventually, and it's cost, to me, television networks money this year uh, in terms of the ratings dip. But... Clay, I I was actually wondering after yesterday, and again, maybe I'm making too much of one game, but that game yesterday is historic and just a reminder of like, man, football is awesome. The best sport in American history. is, is great. And so I'm wondering if that reminder doesn't trump everything that has transpired this season and will we remember this season, particularly if the Vikings went on and won the Super Bowl, will we remember this season for that game and this playoffs more so than the kneeling? It's indisputable that the NFL needed a game like this to happen, where everybody's focus is entirely like, like if you are sitting down, did the, cha- the Saints choke or did the Vikings win? There's, it's all football related, right? Yeah. And I feel like much of the conversation over the past couple of years, whether it's domestic violence, whether it is kneeling, whether it is CTE, almost none of the big stories dealing with the NFL have had to do with actual football-related stories. And that has been a huge distraction and hindrance to the league. I think you look at the ratings, certainly fans have not responded to it favorably. But you raise a good point. Is it possible that this is almost like the moment that cleanses all of the bad taste? You know, it's like... I've had a lot of bad meals, but if the dessert is good, I don't think necessarily about how bad the meal was. Is the dessert good enough that it's going to help cleanse the palate from a bad meal? I, I just I thought about, and again, I, I, I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan. I thought about this game all night and just how pleased and satisfied and how entertaining and just remarkable, and it just reminded me again, it's like, man, I love football. And nothing, nothing delivers like football. And this morning I was watching the highlights and just how that stadium exploded and Stefan Diggs and Case Keenum. And just that was a historic moment, I think. Again, it's like Franco Harris had the immaculate reception. And I think think Pittsburgh went on to win the Super Bowl, or that's my memory of it. and if the Vikings close this out and play the Super Bowl uh, at home, I just think we'll be talking and writing and thinking about this game forever. And and to me, it's like someone tweeted at me, I didn't watch the game, you know, NFL boycott. And all I saw was, man, you were stupid because you just missed something that was just tremendous. Got Jason Whitlock on with us. Go follow him on Twitter at Whitlock. Jason, watch his show. Speak for yourself with Colin Cowherd afternoons on FS1. 
Jason, it's Martin Luther King Day, and so uh, obviously many people working today, many people also have the day off across the country uh, running with us as they start their day. We appreciate them, uh, but let's make the world a better place here. Um, it seems to me, I was thinking about this last night um, as I did my show prep. I'm not an expert on race relations by any stretch of the imagination, but I do love sports, and you love sports, and just about everybody out there who's listening to us right now loves sports as well. And I was thinking back in my life as an adult, 1998, 2008, now 2018. I think this year has been the most racially freighted year that I can remember, the one we just finished, 2017, in the history of sports. And certainly the one probably before that was 2016, right? Now we're in 2018. Is 2018 going to be more like the years that I'm thinking of, like 1998, 2008, or are things going to continue to be as perilous and racially divisive as they have been the previous two years? I think the racial divide is going to continue because I think it's being financed by people that, you know, want to see chaos in America. And so, you know, I I think much of the uh, non-substantive, uh, very divisive uh, racial care. It, it, again, it's being sponsored. Black Lives Matters was being f- sponsored and financed. And I, I think the kind of journalism we've seen, very simplistic, very uh, stupid and non-nuanced and just name-calling, I think is being financed and it's going to continue to be financed. People want the racial division in America because they're trying to promote chaos in America and, you know, see us fall. So I, I don't think it's going anywhere. Are people going to con- wisen up and see that this is being financed and rigged and, and that people are trying to promote division within America? I, I think you're going to see more of that. And, you know, Clay, when I uh, when you invited me on and I wanted to come on, there was a very interesting Wall Street Journal column oh, by Shelby Steele. Uh, over the weekend, and again, I don't agree with all of the column, but I thought it was just very fascinating. His argument basically was that the NFL protest failed and that protest is a failing strategy by black Americans at this point. Uh, you know, I, he argued, I thought, pretty well that uh, protest used to be the path for advancement for African Americans, but now he's arguing that in 2017, 2018, in in this time, protest just isn't effective, that it's lost its sway with the majority community in America, and he says that the protests in the NFL were an abject failure and that, that should be a signal to black America that we need a new strategy that goes well beyond protest. And it is a fascinating article. I shared it on Twitter. I think you did as well. I mean, and, and again, I think it's just thought-provoking. The author is Shelby Steele. It was on the opinion page of the Saturday-Sunday Wall Street Journal, and the headline was, Black Protest Has Lost Its Power with a Picture of the San Francisco 49ers Protesting. And, and it raised an interesting question, and I, I, I was interested in how people were going to respond on Twitter, and I wanted to ask you this, because it seems that anytime you have an opinion that is outside the prevailing norm, in particular on racial issues, if you are black, and you live this all the time, 
you get attacked as not being supportive enough of your race, of being, you know, the phrase obviously that gets tossed around all the time as an Uncle Tom. Like, is that in any – why does that exist? I mean, I, I'm kind of fascinated by that in general because I can't think of – and I'm not an expert on all races, but certainly there's no white person who has an opinion that gets attacked – by other white people as being not representative of the race. And I'm not enough of an expert on Asian issues, frankly, or Hispanic issues, but I certainly don't see it as prominently in those racial groups. Why is it that if you challenge orthodoxy in the black community, you get attacked so vociferously? Because as a political strategy, the liberal aspect of the Democratic Party uh, polices black thought. Again, ninety. We vote democratically, somewhere ninety-five percent, and they police that. They don't. That's a stranglehold that they don't want to let go. And so they have convinced black people that if all your thoughts aren't liberal, you're not black. And there's no other ethnic group that has to align itself with one political point of view in order to maintain credibility within their race. We are policed, and our thoughts are policed in a way like no other race is, and we've fallen for it. Uh, we've lost the freedom to think independently, and you know we've been trained that if, if someone black thinks independently and actually has confidence in black people, it's like, no, 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 maybe we should consider different strategies and different approaches. That person is deemed a sellout. The only thing you can be is liberal and vote Democratic. That's the only solution for black people. And I just don't think that solution has been working out well for us. And we should, again, I don't agree with everything Shelby still wrote here, but we should damn sure consider it and think about it and not dismiss it uh, and take our thinking to a higher level because he certainly raises some legitimate concerns of, about you know our strategy and philosophy. Is it working? Almost 50 years ago, Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 1968, and it's always hard to think about what historic figures would think about life today. But if you were think you could bring Martin Luther King Jr. back into the present day and see what society would be like, what do you think he would think about the status and the role of black life in America today? And in particular, the fact that, like you just said, 95% of people out there who are voting are voting one way or the other. We're also coming off a two-term black president how do you think 50 years later Martin Luther King would be able to assess the status of the country today compared to when he was assassinated? I think his first thought would just be that as African Americans, we've walked away from the church and, and the spirituality and faith that has carried us throughout American history, and I think he would be devastated and concerned by that. And then I think when he started thinking politically, uh, he would start thinking about we've surrendered, abandoned the moral high ground. And that was the part of uh, Shelby Steele's article that, that I don't think he articulated clearly or, or just avoided. But the reason why protest doesn't work is because Martin Luther King and that generation, they had the moral high ground. Their argument 
and their protest was at a higher moral level than their opponents. And well, we don't have that right now with Black Lives Matters and the whole uh, police brutality protest that we're doing. We're avoiding logic, and so the, the lo it's just failing to, and again, does it move the choir? Absolutely. But the rest of the people you're trying to get to join the congregation are looking at you like, hey, man, I get that the police make mistakes, but they make mistakes with white people as well. And in comparison to the amount of black violence towards other black people, you're not standing on the moral high ground crucifying the police and ignoring the violence that we as black people do to each other. The argument just falls apart right there. We've surrendered the moral high ground, and that's why protest doesn't work. And I think Martin Luther King, if around today, again, would be pointing out, we've walked away from the church, that's a mistake, and we've surrendered the moral high ground, that's a mistake. And so... And again, I th the guy, uh, Shelby Steele's article at the end uh, st talks about him and <laughs> homogeny, and our le he's talking about our leadership has it's everything is about victimhood. We're victims. We're victims. We're victims. That's our leadership strategy. That's a mistake. It doesn't work. The world just doesn't bow to victims. The, the world, at the end of the day, is a jungle, and victims get eaten and swallowed. That's just the way the world operates. And so, uh, you know, I think Martin Luther King would have an understanding of that as well. So that's, you know, my thoughts. And again, I'm only speaking for myself. That would be my thoughts on where Martin Luther King would be. You can react, obviously, to anything that either of us are saying, and you can find us on Twitter there. Uh, Jason, really good stuff last segment, and you were closing off with the moral high ground. And to me, one of the fascinating questions about protest in general is the moral high ground is predicated oftentimes on trying to be better than the people that you are protesting. It's a fascinating question. If you read, and I'm a history buff, you read about the civil rights movement, you read about Martin Luther King Jr. and everything that, that he stood for, almost entirely the civil rights movement, you read those guys and those women who were involved and so brave in their, in their struggle, and they were always saying we have to be better than the people that we are protesting against. Somewhere along the way, it seems to me that the idea of being better, which is an innately American goal, right? Be better than someone else. That's ultimately why America has succeeded across the board, has been lost. Would you agree also, in addition to, and we're talking about why the, the, the protest in the NFL hasn't worked necessarily now, that historically, that desire to be better than the people you're protesting isn't necessarily still there. The culture isn't being lifted up like it was during the civil rights movement. No, I think you're a thousand percent accurate. I think that a lot of what you're seeing is, hey, we're going to beat bigotry with our version of bigotry. And <laughs> that's just not how it works. And, you know, only love can conquer hate. It's a cliche, but it's true. And it's what powered uh, Martin Luther King and that movement. I, I want to throw in a little fact 
And, and again, it's early in the morning out here in L.A., and I may not say this a thousand percent accurate, but I, I do want to say that the government, in reaction to Martin Luther King and the success that the church, black church had, instituted laws in the aftermath of the civil rights movement that made it much harder for the black church or for any church to serve in any kind of political way. You you risk losing your uh, untaxed status or your charitable uh, designation if the church becomes too political. And that's why you've seen guys like Al Sharpton and even Jesse Jackson, they'll start a rainbow coalition or the National Network whatever alliance rather than operating from their church. And so the government figured out, oh, a lot of this black protest and the people, it came from the church. How can we stop another Martin Luther King from ever coming about? How do we uh, get them away from the church and lose that spiritual base? And so the laws were changed. And so, again, I think if Martin Luther King were here today, he would be like, okay, there was a strategy employed to make sure there would never be another Martin Luther King, someone coming from the church. And, and so, again, I, I just go back, the loss of the moral high ground, the loss of our spiritual base, and these things are both connected. You stay on the moral high ground because you're grounded in spirituality and a faith in a higher power. So many people now reject Christianity, reject spirituality, and religion, and just want to write it all off as bad. And look, the church has its problems. Every institution has its problems. But I just have never seen anything work as well for black people as spirituality and a faith in God. That has been our salvation for hundreds of years here in America, and we're foolish for walking away from it. You also talked about the victimization culture. What is fascinating to me is sports is the ultimate opposite of the victimization culture in sports you only rely on yourself and your teammates it's us against the world and a line that I've always tried to teach my kids but I picked up along the way is the only hand you can rely on is the one at the end of your sleeve what about that conflict between sports where you are responsible for yourself and the larger society where you believe you know what we're victims we can't succeed Listen, I'm from, I was raised in the church and I was an athlete. And so all my values are taken from that. And, uh, you know, I think in sports, again, if these athletes really understood what has made them financially secure and successful, it's the values taught in sports. And a lot of what they're doing is not reflective of those values taught in sports. And so, and again, if you really understand liberalism and what it teaches black people, that basically it teaches a, it teaches to me white supremacy, that you're nothing as black people without white people. Unless white people uh, come and save you and the government comes and the white government comes and saves you, you can accomplish nothing in America. And there are those of us that believe, no, 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 that's not true. We can be the primary solvers of any of our problems and the primary engine to our success 
collectively as black people and individually as black people, we actually believe in ourselves and believe in black people. And again, that's not letting uh, America off the hook for racism and obstacles in front of us, but it's about who's going to solve these problems and who's going to be the primary engine. And there are those of us that believe we can do that. Liberalism, I'm just sorry, at this point it just teaches the total opposite and so I, I hear a lot of these people what jason i've got to i've got to cut you off there because the show is ending we need to have you on again we got to have whitlock on tomorrow text him you want him on tweet him you want him on i'm out kick oh, 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 O'Reilly. you need parts o'reilly auto parts has parts need them fast we've got fast no matter what you need we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 